you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You are joining us for I Might Be Wrong. I have Henry with me. I am Rich. Good afternoon, I- Henry. <laughs> I am Henry. Hello, Rich. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. After you were... Very apologetic last week. We've now got the sun back for recording, which is nice. Yeah, my jinx is finally finished, which is good. Maybe it's just not my jinx. Maybe my <laughs> chat on this podcast and the weather of the world aren't interlinked at all. Are you telling me you don't control the weather? Well, I'm starting to think that. I'm having a crisis <laughs> of confidence. Uh, oh, well. This should restore some level of confidence because I am going to compliment you on your choice and selection for this week. You have gone very, very, very big, both in terms of band, cultness and volume of songs. Yeah, I have actually. And, and it's you kind of mentioned cultness and that's a, a good place to start. Yeah, I've chosen the Smashing Pumpkins and their album Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness as my pick for this week. I don't know that it could be any other of their albums, could it? No, it couldn't. I think that there are diehard fans that might object and might have a a good argument for one of the previous ones, but I I don't think so. I think this is really the the kind of high point in the Pumpkins' kind of back catalogue. Yeah, it's the peak of their powers. It, It feels like them working as a band with all of them really hitting their peak not just Corgan hitting his peak and then dragging the others along with him yeah let me tell you about the band yes do not that you need to know much of this stuff but some people (laughs) might not know um so the Smashing Pumpkins were formed in Chicago in 1988 um we've mentioned the front man Billy Corgan if you can't quite work out who the Smashing Pumpkins are he sings like he's got a clothes peg on his nose he's got a bit of a distinctive style of voice and their music is well, it, it it's quite quite varied, really. It's part kind of goth rock, part dream pop, part shoegaze. They go into electronica later on in their in their career. They're a bit of an enigma, really. They're a bit of a funny old beast. Where would you place them in terms of your music kind of pigeonholing, or can't you? I always think of them being a cross between American alt rock and grunge. They're not either of those things quite, but there's large elements of both of those things in their music. Yeah. Well, let's go to the start of their career because grunge is, is a good point. I mean, they th- this album was released in 95 as kind of in the dying days of grunge. But before that, they formed in, in 88 and it was, it was really Corgan and his guitar playing buddy, James Iher, who started off um, recording together. They recorded their first stuff, uh, well, they did their first performances with Corgan playing bass, Iher on guitar, and a drum machine, because they didn't have a drummer. So they started, I guess, fairly <laughs> fairly low-key. <laughs> then they started recording their albums, and this is where it gets, um, I guess, interesting in terms of their perception from the music press um, and beyond, and we'll go into this a bit more, but they released uh, an album called Gish, and then an album called Siamese Dream, and both of them got them noticed. They, they got a drummer, Jimmy Chamberlain, so they were a kind of a three-piece. And the problem ha- was because Corgan 
wanted to play all the instruments. So Corgan was not happy with the way that <laughs> Iha's guitar playing went and also with the, the drumming. So Corgan started recording everything himself. So almost had this band, but then got rid of them for the albums. That pissed off Iha. It pissed off the press as well, because the press of the music industry were like, who are you to think you're so awesome as to record an album completely by yourself and tell everyone that you're awesome so yeah (laughs) he's always had quite no i was gonna say he's always had quite the ego but that's the wrong way of saying it he's always been a massive perfectionist which i think comes across as egotistic but actually i think there's a lot of self-doubt in there that drives that need to, to to have that that huge amount of control yeah and he he wrote cherub rock from siamese dream as a kind of riposte to the music industry as a kind of trying to fight back at them uh lying there saying beware all those angels with their wings glued on basically having a pop at a, a lot of the people in the music press who who thought he was a phony yeah and it's it's an odd one isn't it because They've never been popular with the music press. They're a band who feel like they should be critical media darlings, and yet they're not. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I think now, listening to Corgan's interviews, he's not mellowed, but he seems to have got comfort that the music press are starting to go back and think his albums are good. So he's kind of got that, okay, yes, you have told me now I am good, therefore I need to worry less and so he's more accommodating there was an interesting interview i watched where someone asked him why he didn't just go solo and what's the point why have a band when you're doing it all yourself really Mm -hmm. and his response was interesting he said it was because he wasn't really close to his family at the time back then his, his parents weren't that close to him and so he needed that band almost as a second family and right. treated them almost like a kind of family and had fallings out. And he was probably, when he was saying, actually, the, probably all the, all they wanted to do was just be a band, but he wanted more than that. And because of that, it just became more intense. And intensity is something that comes up time and time again when you read interviews or watch interviews with, with members of the band. So Jimmy Chamberlain talks about this. He says, everything was very, very intense. That's just how we worked. And yeah, I suppose eventually that took its toll. And again, it all stems from Corgan's desire to make the thing that he's got in his head and to not accept anything less than that. Yeah. And I think the first two albums, they weren't super distinctive, but they were very... Some of them were almost not quite metal, but there was kind of this goth, God, tough influence. Like there were the guitars in there are vicious. There's some, not punk, but some pretty loud music in there. I mean, there's less of the the beauty that influences melancholy. Yeah. And so for the first couple of albums, and, and these, these came out in 91 and 93, and they were acclaimed in their own little niche, so the smaller indie magazines picked them up, but they didn't go hugely mainstream. Um, and then melancholy completely changed all that. Yeah, I think there's a weird thing here of if these albums had come out 10 years earlier or 10 years later, they probably would have been huge because alt-American rock feels like the right place for for the sounds for those two albums. But at the time, 
America was obsessed with grunge and they're almost a bit too bright. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's almost like that old school metal, that influence. He's He said himself he's been influenced by Sabbath, by Osborne, by even kind mm. of Pantera. He's saying that they're, they've influenced him too. And those bands don't sound like grunge music. So they kind of stood off to one side. It's a bit like when we were talking about the Blur Oasis battle and you've got Pulp just kind of sat on the edge and not quite <laughs> yeah. involved. That again was a problem because early 90s metal had almost become a caricature and a joke within both mainstream music and serious hardcore music fan circles and so these guys having that edge of old school rock old school metal as part of their sound things like today would never have been okay with the grunge crowd yeah great song by the way actually yeah but you're right so it brings us up to 95 and then I guess Corgan had a bit of a had a bit of an inspirational thought. Well, he had an inspirational summer. He in '95 he had a bit of a an episode, wrote fifty odd songs, and just kept writing and wanted to create this album. So he created a double album uh, for for Melancholy, which has got to be up there with some of the best double albums. And really, double albums weren't really a big thing back in the 90s. Right. And the record company, Virgin, apparently tried to talk him out of it. He went to them and said, I want to do this double album. They said, no. Yeah. And he he's said he wanted it to be like The Wall was with Pink Floyd's double album mm-hmm. for Generation X. He wanted to try and recreate that kind of... I guess he just wanted to show his ambition. You know, the Beatles had done it. The Springsteen's done it with The River. Zeppelin did it with Physical Graffiti loads of bands have gone this is our kind of opus and he's had a go at it too and i do think we've almost i don't think consciously avoided saying it but we've certainly not said epic about most of the albums that we've discussed on this podcast not because a lot of them aren't but because i think people overuse epic as a term to describe you know really big great albums this double album deserves that term. It is an absolute epic of a double album. Yes, it's exactly. And and we mentioned in a previous podcast, the 69 Love Songs with a Magnetic Field was, was a big album, had loads of songs in. It's not epic. This album is is just incredible because he's not just stuck to that single style that he had in the earlier albums. He's He's gone in all different directions. I mean, he's tried to bring in influences from from almost classical music. He's got huge amounts of strings on his album. He recorded a lot of it with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And you can just see it's someone who's just punting for the for the moon. I think there's also another element of finding a producer that they'd wanted to work with that's had a massive influence on the way that they could create that sound. So Flood, Mark Ellis, the producer for this album, Corgan had said that he really wanted to work with him and the record label were pushing other more successful rock producers on him. Uh, He'd worked on Depeche Mode, U2, PJ Harvey, and they were desperate to work with him because of that ability to create big 
lush rock anthemic sounds that I think he recognised had maybe been missing from what he'd been doing before. Yeah. And I guess in terms of going into the album, there's no way nowhere better to start than with Tonight, Tonight, which is the second song on the album. It's the way that I was introduced to the Pumpkins. So they went onto the British, I think it was on top of the Pops, actually. It was, yeah. I heard that and was just instantly sold. I want to call out Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which is the opening track as well, partly because it's it's quite a gentle intro to the start of the album, but it also drops into Tonight Tonight. So the two, for me, work really well together. Well, I, that's actually why I didn't mention it, because that it's almost one song in a way. It's, yeah. a, it's a piano ballad that turns into this epic. And yeah, as I said, the, there's a 30-piece string section in this. Yes, the strings. It, it's, it's huge. And so it caught my ears instantly. So I remember exactly where I was when I was listening to this because I was I got quite sick when I was younger mm-hmm. I was off school for for kind of a few months and and right when I was sickest I was on all sorts of nasty medication and I watched this and I and I said to my mum can you go and buy me this cd and she said yeah she'll write it down and I'll go and get it from Woolworths or whatever and before she went to the shop she's like are, are you okay and obviously it had melancholy and the infinite sadness <laughs> written down. And she thought I was massively depressed. And I was I was going through a bit of a rough point, but I was like, Mum, no, chill out. I'm not just <laughs> I'm I'm not right down in the depths. Yeah. And then I, I actually played her that song and she got it. She realized that it wasn't just a just a, a terrible album. But yeah, it, that that song hooked me in. The strings on this are immense, but the drumming as well, that intro drumming section is is such a signature of what what they do in this album and and the drumming that you get from Chamberlain throughout the whole album I mean it, it it's all just driving drums and riffs and not something you'd expect from a rock album where half of the things that he's doing are things that would be the drum fills in any other rock artist's music yeah but I think that to me that that intro those first two songs are beautiful and then it drops into Jelly Belly with this kind of vicious, yeah. vicious guitar and he's sneering at the microphone and it sounds like he's kind of juggling knives and the whole thing is just just nasty almost. It's got this really dark undercurrent and that's the point for me where this album opens out into way more than just a, a simple album. And I can I totally get this double album, by the way, but one thing that we often say is, oh, if you had condensed the double album down into a single, then you could get a, a best of. I wouldn't want to take out tracks from this. Yeah. I love it. It's just massive. It's, it's super. And I think that's going back to my comment of epic. I think that's why I feel that I can call it that because you need everything to work. 69 love songs, there's like bits in there that's just wonderful, but other bits where you're like, eh. Whereas... I really struggled to narrow down to just picking a few tracks out from these albums because there's so much that's great on here. Yeah, and there's so much that's different as well. There's so many different styles of music that... Yeah. And I don't want to do a track by track, but you could. And you could talk about lots of them. We're not doing a 28-song track by track. (laughs) The one thing I would say is that while I totally agree with you about the varying style it flows it never feels jarring when they move from like you say the strings and beauty and uplifting sound of of tonight tonight into jelly belly 
Yeah. I do want to say from tonight tonight, one of my favorite things on this whole album is that one minute 20 moment where it shifts from this kind of beautiful, just shimmering, easing along thing. And then there's this massive surge of drums and strings and his voice that's just so uplifting. I get hairs on the back of my neck every time I hear that. Oh, yes. The point where, where it basically it's when the song gets going. Yeah. And then, yeah, that's uh, uh, it's probably one of my favorite songs of the 90s, actually. Just thinking about it, it is an absolute classic. I struggle to say that it's my favorite song on this album. Well, let's let's go through a few more. <laughs> but it is epic. I'm going to pick a few. Um, I I love cool. Muzzle. I think Muzzle is just this triumphant, wonderful track, which is different to the rest. Where do I go next? I love 33. I think it's beautiful. There's there's all sorts. Would you pick out a few? So the track that I say I don't know that I can say tonight tonight is my favorite is 1979 which is the first track I heard from this album and I absolutely adore 1979 I think I'm the only smashing pumpkins fan in the world that doesn't really like it Really I just don't get it I've never liked it Oh I, wow I just I don't know it's a bit meh and and in fact, you know what? I'm just going to shut up and not talk about it. You tell me why you think it's great, and I'm just going to feel a bit embarrassed. But I just, it's just not one for me. I think one of the things is it's actually not that smashing pumpkinsier song, which I think is probably what attracted me to it in the first place. But it was a gateway to the rest of their work. I don't know that if I'd heard something like Jelly Belly at the time this album came out, that I'd have immediately gone, "Oh yeah, I need to listen to this album." I love, I love the bass in here. This gentle, it's just in the background. It's delicate and it it sort of brings things along. But it's this movement from, it's the quiet loud quiet thing. Mm. It's th- this intro where it gives you this promise of what's coming and then it really delivers on it and that's what i love about it mm. and it was a huge hit too it was mm-hmm. it was bigger than tonight tonight i mean i think it was the first single off the, off the album and it's massive so I, i'm i must be wrong but yeah it's, <laughs> not, it's not one for me the other thing about this is again it's almost like tonight tonight and Jelly Belly, you then get this onslaught of full grunge metal of Tales of a Scorched Earth. So you're never allowed to settle fully in this album. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, and even, even after that, when you've got Through the Eyes of Ruby, it's it's this pretty beautiful music, but there's just this little dark edge to all of this, which, I don't know, it's it's a lovely way of making a, making a record. Yeah, it's that. Anytime they have something beautiful, you're never far away from those angry metal guitars just ripping through the thread of the album. Yeah. Actually, when I listen to this, I always, in my head, conjure up the artwork on the front of the the album. It works so well. There's something about it, because in the UK version, I'm not sure if the US one had the same, it's this, there's a woman on on a star in the middle of space, and it's this kind of, beautiful but kind of lonely it's a funny old piece of album artwork i did a little bit of research on the artwork because i was i was intrigued by it yeah tell me about it i I know nothing about it i found an interview on npr that talks about specifically the artwork and how it came together the whole artwork was created by john craig who's an illustrator from pittsburgh and he's famous for doing collages so he's pulling in art from other places and bringing it all together to a specific look that's wanted. 
And apparently initially they didn't want his work, not because they didn't like it, but because they wanted a painted image mm. for the front cover. And this obviously feels like a painted image, but it's not. It's famous artwork brought together. Okay. Well, some of it's famous artwork and all of it. So the star is from a whiskey ad where they had drinks floating on stars. So if you actually look at the body of the lady right where she meets the star there's actually a lip of a glass no way and you can see it still there okay because it, it was the right place for him to kind of place that that figure in there that was the stem of the cocktail and then the face is by john baptiste gruzer g-r-e-u-z-e gruzer mm-hmm. yeah i guess let's go with that so the face is from his work and the body is from a Raphael painting of St. Catherine of Alexandria. So there's all this old Raphaelite, pre-Raphaelite artwork that's been brought together for this one particular image. But it's so iconic now that if you ever saw that face or that body, you'd think someone's stolen this from the pumpkins, not the other way around. Yeah, I love the way that they've taken this imagery that was kind of stuck in churches and old buildings and just blasted it into space yeah it's uh, <laughs> it's quite a cool way of doing it and if you see there's a bigger piece that is the cover for the special edition that's right that was all work that he'd kind of pulled together and in the original artwork for the original album a lot of that's in the inlays rather than on the front cover itself but i i much prefer the original simple just her and the star image for that cover i don't like the special edition cover as much yeah I agree with you. There's something kind of, I don't know, desolate and beautiful about it. It's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful image, and it goes perfectly with the album. Just the, yes. the, the colours and everything. It's just, it's exactly. You look at it and you can kind of almost work out the album from that. Yeah, it's one of those things we've talked about album covers being that perfect marriage of what you want and an iconic image. And I wonder whether it's just because it's such a well-known album that the image becomes iconic in your mind. Maybe. But it is an amazing image, and I love it for it. Yeah, definitely. Oh, good. Thanks for that. I was, uh, I did wonder, and now I know. You are welcome. Cool. Uh, did you know that they are recording currently a follow-up to Melancholy? No, I didn't. I, I, so I, I did know that in 2018, I think Corgan, Iha, and Chamberlain all got back together. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that they were... That was for Seer, right? That's right, yeah. Which was kind of an Electronica album, really. I've, I've listened to it, and it's it's not quite Pumpkins-esque. That was apparently partly Corgan putting two fingers up to the music industry and making a pop album, because he wanted to do something like that anyway, and he's like, well, fuck them and their expectations. I'm going to do this Electronica thing. But there's an upcoming album that they've written apparently 33 songs for as another double album, and it's... It's a conceptual follow-up, so it won't necessarily sound the same, but it's it's their sort of sequel in their minds of what they think the next album in a melancholy sequence should be. Wow, it's a bit like Smile and Pet Sounds. They're kind of... I guess so. Wicked. Cool. Be interesting to see where, where it goes, though. Yeah, definitely. When this came out, this was big. I mean, this was Billboard number mm-hmm. one in the, in, the, in the US charts... Tonight, I mentioned it was on top of the pops, which was UK's pop show, which was, which uh, yeah, I mean, there isn't an equivalent today; it doesn't exist. But this was huge. It was a, it was a yep. massive album. It was these songs were played in the charts, and the Pumpkins became, I guess, for this for this year until the um, events 
on, on their tour, which I'll mention in a second, that they were they were kind of shot into superstardom. Which seems to be the thing that brought a lot of those problems that you're alluding to. Yeah, well, so they went on a world tour in 96. If you know the Smashing Pumpkins, you'll probably know this kind of iconic look that Corgan had. He wore a black top with zero in white letters written on the front of it, had a shaved head. And, and that's what that was the look that they had as they traveled around the world. And things went bad in, in May. They, they played in Dublin. And uh, one of their, their fans, 17-year-old called Bernadette O'Brien, was, was killed. She was crushed to death. Um, despite the band saying to try and get everyone back, wow. she, was, she ended up being crushed. And, uh, and that, was, that was the first of a kind of, you know, it's a bit of a, a cursed, cursed tour. But they carried on. You know, we've all been there at gigs when you've had bands trying to say, stop it, don't mess around, but you kind of, you're just stuck in this, in this mess. So it's often more down to the venue than the band. So venues should know that they've got a band that are going to bring a very intense live show and they should have enough security staff down at the front to be able to pull people out of the crowd. But I've seen it. Like you say, we've all been there where there's like two security guys and they're doing their best, but there just isn't enough people to get people out quickly enough. I remember we, when we talked about the feeder gig, that's the most crushed I've ever been at a gig. And we were 10, 12, maybe further back from the front than that. I can't imagine how bad it was down at the front against the rails. Uh, but I've I've been at, at gigs right up at the front where I've, I've really started to get squashed and I'm... I'm six foot, six foot two and a bit and and my head's above everyone else's so I can get, easily get oxygen. But you see people, normally it's it's women who are further down who are properly like completely stuck and it must be a horrible experience if you're stuck in all of that when yeah. you can't really see anything. Or, so anyway, yeah, tragedy in May. Then they moved on and then in July, things went, went from, from bad to worse where the drummer, Chamberlain, um, and... Th- a keyboardist who was touring with them called Jonathan Melvoin both took drugs um, in the hotel room and both overdosed. Melvoin died and Chamberlain got arrested for possession. And was fired from the band. Yeah, he was he was kicked out. Well, I think he's probably in jail. <laughs> right. up somewhere. But then the Pumpkins made, or or I guess Corgan made what he says is the worst decision of his, his career, which mm. was that they hired another drummer hired another keyboardist and just carried on with the tour. Oh, wow. And I think at that point, their old critics, who may have got a bit quieter because of the success of Melancholy, all jumped back in and basically said, well, you know, how can you do that? How can you have one person in your in your team die, another person get locked up, and you just carry on as if nothing's ever happened? Yeah, but it's always tricky with those kind of decisions because you have to... You're not just thinking about the band here. You've got a lot of other people in your crew that you've got to think about. And if you're not touring, you're not getting paid. Certainly back then, a lot of the money came from doing those live tours. And also, I guess, to an extent, there was so much tension. There was a lot going on in the band that, you know, the heroin overdoses weren't the start of the problem. They They were just the end of a long line of things but getting worse and worse and taking drugs and drinking to sort of try and escape 
the pressure and the the level of fame that they'd got themselves into that they were i mean they talked about the fact they had no support network they were left to their own devices and they were young and really weren't coping and so i guess corgan's coping mechanism was to carry on because if he if he'd stopped he'd have to face what what had happened yeah on his watch yeah so that all happened and off the back of that they wrote a door which i don't know if you've heard that album they tried to go in a new direction and for me it just didn't hold any of the the vastness or the the interest that that previous album had and i don't know i i, I listened to it i i think i bought it actually because it sold well uh and then they wrote Makina, the machines of god in 2000 it was kind of their breakup album they were at that point they were leaving although there are some great tracks on there the sacred and profane is a cracking one mm-hmm. um there are a few others that, that are good but i think at that point they were i don't know a spent force maybe i think when you are dealing with that much pressure all the time the burnout's inevitable yeah and this was them burning out i mean They've gone on to do other things since, including reuniting on several occasions. Corgan created a band called Zwan. I have their album. I don't know if they've got more than one. I think they only released one album, and I like it. I don't. It's not a Pumpkins album. It's it's different, but there's some of that Pumpkins swagger from Melancholy that's that's on there. But yeah, they're a very different bunch of people now. I've read interviews with Corgan and with Chamberlain where they talk about being fathers and Mm. being considered to be very boring people these days. There's a quote from Chamberlain that says, I'm on the school board now and I'm definitely the squarest there. Everyone's drinking wine. They all think I'm super boring. Really? How weird. And he has this drug addict tag that because of that one period of his life, that's just stuck with him forever. And journalists were always asking him about it. And the more recent interviews with him, you can tell he's frustrated with being tarred forever with that one part of his life. His recent interviews are really interesting. He is a really interesting and thoughtful guy. He's really, yeah, that's the word, isn't it? So I was watching one actually just just a few minutes before we we got on. He was was talking about the the state of music Mm -hmm. and just saying that, you know, that, the spirit of rock and roll is basically dead and electronic is potentially where there's there's new interest. But he said, he said it should be easy to identify the next Dylan or Cobain. You know, it should be easy to see this huge talent exploding out of the world, but it's not. And he says it's music safe and it's got its, it's in its own comfort zone now. And um, he's, he's kind of, kind of sad. Um, but he was interested in saying that the next one, the next big one will come on from India or Africa or China and it'll blow us out of the water. But he said, you know, it's not happening at the moment in the Western world. That interview was a few years ago, and, and I think he's right. I don't think anything's emerged where you've got an incredible, I guess, anti-establishment or just different vibe coming out of music. I tend to think that people like that are mi- missing some of those individuals. So if you go back... Five or six years before she got involved with Elon Musk, Grimes was producing mind-blowing different electronica music that was really amazing and was capturing both the underground scene and the mainstream. There, there are definitely those individuals around. I think part of the problem now is that we're in such a consume quickly and move on world 
that it's much harder for a band to emerge and stick unless they are a safe mainstream choice that people are like, oh, this is nice. That's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, Grimes, I, I actually, I think you're probably right. I would put money on Billy Corgan being a Grimes fan. That's the kind of thing that he would be keen on. And we haven't ever talked about Grimes before now, but she, she's written some wacky and brilliant stuff. And she is a very unusual individual anyway you read about her oh i can't remember which album it was but one of her albums where she basically locked herself in a room and and didn't eat for two weeks while she wrote the album what okay because she felt that she'd get the best work out of herself by doing that which is interesting i don't want to say bonkers or mad or anything like that because i I don't want to judge but certainly not a conventional approach to writing music yeah i got Art Angels, the one that she made in 2015. It's the one before that that's that album. Yeah, fucking hell. Art Angels is amazing. Oh, it's it's spectacular and we will do that at some point. Yeah. Put Kill V Mame on the playlist because that's amazing. Uh, Kill V Mame and California off yeah, there are both exactly. brilliant, brilliant tracks. But yeah, so I think you're right. I think it's probably the attention span which is preventing some of these artists from not getting that massive mainstream longevity that, that others did. Maybe you're right, yeah. And we always go through these swings in music in the mainstream anyway. So we've talked about this before, the kind of the big rock and metal thing in the 80s, followed by early 90s pop, followed by indie, followed by more boy bandish pop in the early noughts, and then back to more indie certainly in the uk with the kind of massive massive but not particularly exciting indie scene that came along then yeah there's always these changes and it just feels like we've had a lot of more of the pop and maybe the black artists coming to prominence in the last 10 years where there's been a lot more hip-hop and you know some of the london scenes the hip-hop scenes that we've talked about have been more prominent in in uk in the music scene i I think that's where that's where all the interest's coming. And us alternative kids, like you say, are listening to Electronica. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a brave new world, but I don't know. We have wandered well off track here, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, into the middle of nowhere, but let's um, let's go back. All right, so the, the big one for these guys, particularly with this album, because it was renowned as being an incredible album to see live. Have you seen them live? No, no, I haven't. And... um. I'm a bit disappointed, really, because they would be special. And maybe I was too too young when they were in their prime. If you think kind of mid-90s, I was, I was too young to go to gigs then. So I don't think I would have ever really come across them. And, and at the point when I was really getting into my gig-going strides, I guess at, at the turn of the millennium, they really were a spent force by then. Well, they'd have broken up pretty much around that point. I'm the same. Yeah. I'm five years too young to have been able to catch, or maybe even 10 years too young to catch them live. And similar, I would love to have seen those melancholy live sets. That would have been would have been incredible. But yeah, don't know that I would go and see them now unless the follow-up to melancholy turns out to be absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, agree. Let's see where that one goes. It has the potential. I would never say never with someone like Billy Corgan doing his thing if, if he can find some form somehow i'm not sure he could but if he does then that'll be interesting to listen to they would be one of those where i would love to see them play melancholy 
as a live anniversary blah 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 one of those type tours yeah. but i also think that tickets would be horrendously expensive and or gold dust for, for those kind of tours yes yeah well the generation x comment that i mentioned earlier there would be a lot of people with a lot of deep pockets that would pay a lot of money to go and see this absolutely okay influences what did they lead you into um they didn't lead me into another, any types of bands but they really got me into bigger music so so i listened to them from tonight tonight that was the the single that got got me into it but the rest of the album so diverse i think it it stopped me just thinking of i like indie guitar music okay and kind of said you can listen to heavier stuff so i bought metallica and justice for all about six months after listening to this one i had a metallica phase and then i had a piano phase i started listening to classical music off the back of this i think i think it basically taught my ears to open up a little bit yeah okay that's a great influence in that case yeah what about you i think for me probably the grungier side the heavier side was something that that opened up a little bit in me so these guys nirvana this was around a point in my life where i went from really really disliking heavy aggressive thrashy guitar type sounds to being more open to them and they were certainly part of that but i think also the same as you that oh there's all sorts of things going on together here so big thrashy guitars with violins yeah what how does does that work work. yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and actually the one thing i've been annoyed at actually when we've been talking about this is that I, I haven't listened to this album for about 20 years. A bit like you and Blink, when mm-hmm. we, we talked about them and you said, you've just not gone back. And I haven't gone back to this album. And I thought, let's try it out for this podcast. I'm listening to it over and over again. It's <laughs> it's fantastic. It's it's brilliant to come back to an album which you know so well, but have forgotten about. Yeah, I definitely think it's timeless in its sound. It's of its time, but it's not something that, you listen to now and you're like eh, uh, it doesn't doesn't stand up anymore it still sounds incredibly fresh and incredibly vibrant and i think it's that raw emotional thing he's tapped into something almost primal in this album yeah yeah it's special and uh, and it's the pinnacle of their work and i think that's why it, it's so noticeable yeah currently got bullet with butterfly wings playing in my ear and i'm trying not to headbang and hit my microphone <laughs> and this is this is the thing you can just you can go track after track and there'll be a hook or there'll be a piece of just beauty stuck in a song and it'll get right to your head so yeah yeah i'm a big fan brilliant album mate good work this has got to be up there as one of the top albums released in the 90s yeah well i'm i'm glad i kind of stumbled across it purely because it was sat on my cd rack and i spotted it and thought oh yeah let's do that brilliant but listening it to it again has really got me thinking i need to listen to more smashing pumpkins so yeah nice it also we're going to get to the point here where we're going to have to give in and cover nirvana and it's not from lack of want it's because i think we're worried about doing a really great job of it but i'm worried about Nirvana. yeah (laughs) it's one of those bands that having done the pumpkins we can't stay away from nirvana for too much longer no let's do it but sometime soon where i and i need to do it properly because i actually got told off by one of our listeners for some of my Nirvana facts, which were wrong. So, yeah, 
more later when we do the Nirvana episode. I'll make a formal apology, but f- ah, for now, I, I messed up. So, um, yeah, noted, said listener. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. Well, thanks for bringing this one, and thank you all for joining us for it. Yeah. Cheers, buddy. Catch you later. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.